Hi, good evening. I'm Yaakov Katz, the Senior Fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute, and welcome to another episode of our Inside Analysis of Israel's War Against Hamas. I'm joined this evening uh, by two people, Yadidia Stern, Professor Yadidia Stern, the President of JPPI, and we will be joined shortly by Amir Aronovich, the CEO of the Jewish Agency for Israel. Uh, we're waiting momentarily for Amira to join us. Uh, there's a lot going on and a lot to discuss. We'll have Amira with us to discuss, hopefully, the Jewish agency and the roles that they have been playing in the war and the aftermath of uh, what is happening down south and what the world, the Jewish world in particular, can, um, can do now with the aftermath of what happened on October 7th, the displacement of so many people. But until Amira comes, Yadidia, maybe we should at least start talking about one of the big issues, maybe the thorniest issue of this war, and that is the issue of the hostages. It's really coming to the forefront as we speak. Lots of rumors circulating, particularly today, with what's been happening, uh, especially at the Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, talks of how the IDF uh, might have found there some indication of what happened to some of the hostages, evidence to one way or the other, and maybe we'll find some something out in the hours or possibly day or two to come. But with that happening, there's also a lot of talk here in Israel. We know that the cabinet has been meeting uh, regularly over the week, the security cabinet, the internal inter-war cabinet forum, as well as the larger government to discuss what will happen if there's a deal that's on the table for the release of, of some of the hostages that would include uh, have to include the return or a swap and release of some of the Palestinian security prisoners in Israeli jails, but also, and this personally I feel is maybe the bigger price to some extent, is a, is a pause, a significant pause in the fighting and um, what that would mean for the continuation of the of the conflict. And you know, this is a it's a huge dilemma. Right, because we have two different interests and priorities, obviously, that are that are at play here. On the one hand, uh, Amira, welcome. Thank you for joining. Uh, on, on the one hand, we have the issue of continuing the the battle against Hamas to degrade their capabilities, to topple their government from in Gaza, and to be able to provide security for the entire state of Israel. On the other hand. We have 240 people almost who are being held in Gaza. We just heard the other day of a woman who gave birth in in the Gaza Strip, uh, one of the hostages. So there's a, there's a baby just a few days old who's now in in Hamas captivity. When you think about the these uh, these issues and and what they mean and the challenges and the 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 conflict of interest, how do you understand Israel's role in in the government and in being able to manage the the difference and the tension between what's needed to provide overall security, but also to provide a uh, a resolution and to bring people home, right? The social contract between a state and its people. Well, first of all, shalom, Yaakov, shalom, Amira, shalom, everybody who is joining us. Um, yes, not an eye remained dry, Yaakov, and uh, we heard on the news that uh, Apparently, one of the captive uh, uh, gave birth to a child in captivity. It's it's creepy, it's shocking, it's really unimaginable. This is one person, and we have, as we said, two hundred and forty people there. You know, uh, yesterday a march of the family of the captives 
started to walk from Tel Aviv to uh, Jerusalem. And after a few days of marching, they will uh, stay in front of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, in order to pressure the state of Israel to act in the most uh, decisive way possible. And as we all know, uh, returning the captive is one of the two goals of this war. Now, uh, I would like to say something which may be uh, news for those who are not Israelis, but Israeli media for change is acting very responsibly. Uh, they made a decision, this, the traditional media, not to publish any videos of the captives that Hamas publishes as part of its uh, psychological uh, war against Israel. This is a mature decision, and I really respect it and think it's great. However, nevertheless, as you mentioned, Yaakov, obviously the pressure is building up, and uh, understandably so. Now, we know, I know, that Hamas will continue this uh, pressure, this psychological war using the hostages, and I assume this will accompany us for a long period of time after the war will be over. In realistic terms, I would assume that uh, not all the captives are alive, and we don't we don't know who is not alive, and they might be missing, like Honorad, as you all remember years ago, and maybe even some of them were uh, smuggled out of Gaza Strip to elsewhere, and it will be very difficult to locate them. So this is going to be the weapon that Hamas will keep aimed at us, and it might be working even after the Hamas as an organization will not exist in the Gaza Strip. Now, how should Israel act? That's your question. And I think some of us feel that the most important and maybe the only important thing is protecting the lives of these people. Uh, we, we, they are our people, and we have to bring them back no matter what. Some people, and I'm one of this group, feel that we have to think in terms of national security. Sometimes, it is very painful to say, but this is reality, there is a tension between these two important values. On one hand, saving a life, and on the other hand, protecting national security. Remember what happened with the release of Ilat Shalit, only one soldier, and Israel significantly compromised its national security in order to express its honorable commitment to the release of, of a one prisoner. And indeed, as we know, the leaders of the Hamas in the current war are terrorist murderers that Israel released in order to get back one soldier. Was it the right decision? Is it responsible to sacrifice supreme security interest in order to return uh, uh, our brothers and sisters? It's a huge dilemma. It's a huge dilemma. I would like to end by saying that the Jewish tradition, this is a Jewish state, Jewish tradition teaches us, I think, an important lesson. And it says in the Talmud, and we have lots of uh, responsa in the past, that we must not redeem captives at any price, but only at what one may say a reasonable price, meaning a price that will not destroy yourself. So it is difficult to convey such a message at this time. The blood is boiling. But, uh, but you know, I think that brave leadership should make brave decisions. Yeah, this is a uh, 
This is part of that. I think we knew from the beginning, it's this heart-wrenching reality that Israel is in beyond the battlefield is what Hamas is able to do with the people that they've taken captive and how they can just continue to rip out our hearts on not a daily basis, an hourly basis. And to to imagine just what these people are going through. Amira, uh, thank you very much for joining us here at JPPI in our daily uh, webinar that we started since the beginning of this war. And Hard to believe that we're already six weeks into this. It's uh, it's mind blowing. Someone said to me today, you know, "This is the thirtieth episode," and I was, it's 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 just been almost a blur how much we've we've you know how, how much time has passed and how much we've been through as a people and as as a country. And I thought of that when 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 you were when you confirmed your participation. You know, the Jewish agency and you even in the last five years as director general have really overseen a lot of emergency situations for the Jewish people. Right. Whether, uh, you know, all over the world, the Russia-Ukraine war, helping get Jews out and getting them to safety and getting them, even those who remained, getting them the needs to remain safe and secure. Uh, so maybe just if you could give us kind of an overlook of just what the Jewish agency has been doing since the beginning of this war. What are the projects, the programs, the different roles that you've been playing to assist in uh, in the aftermath of what happened and the tragedies of October 7th? So thank you, Yaakov, and thank you, Didia and the JPPI uh, for this important daily webinar, which we are supporting even when I'm not here, uh, but also for the opportunity to speak here today. I'll say, you know, the Jewish agency, as I uh, see it, uh, which is uh, over 93 years old, has always been playing a major role uh, and a unique one being an agent of the Jewish collective. So, uh, you know, we are... um, At our core, uh, we've always been this uh, long arm of the Jewish people to address the biggest challenges. Uh, The biggest one was to establish this country, which was a joint venture with World Jewry, as well as um, then the decades of of building this country, building 900 settlements, um, including in the Western Negev surrounding Gaza and in the confrontation line in the north, as well as providing all the basic infrastructure for the country, um, and then in the 70s, the project renewal, mobilizing rural Jewry to support uh, the weaker populations in Israel and many, many other roles. But I think what um, is, um, is a thread all through those uh, years is that the Jewish agency sees itself as kind of an infrastructure, um, a global one that provides itself for the state of Israel whenever such crises happen. Um, this is how we've been, um, you know, at the second Lebanon war. This is how we've been after protective edge. And every time there is such a crisis. And what this means really is that immediately we move from just being an organization that carries out its own programs to support its own beneficiaries, but rather uh, provide our expertise, our operational capabilities, our unique status vis-a-vis the government, our ability, our globality and ability to mobilize the Jewish people, all in the service of those priorities of the state of Israel. And in that sense, I'll say that, um, you know, as as we were all shocked and broken and and grieving with all of the country, with the terror uh, and the horrific terror attacks of the 7th of October, um, we immediately um, went into this uh, status of operation. So first, we take care of vulnerable populations. These are populations that we are... um, taking care of 24-7 every day all through the year. Those are the ones we have no one else to go to but us. We are their home. I talk about thousands of new olim, new immigrants, which we have brought together, world jury to Israel, all along the years. Just a few months ago, completed a huge wave of aliyah from Ethiopia, as well as 90,000 who came from Russia and Ukraine. 
uh, those people that while in their initial period of absorption are residing with our, within our own facilities um, are at the most vulnerable situation in these cases. So providing them the safety, being able to be evacuated from fire zones into more safer areas, uh, providing them with the psychological assistance um, or any other humanitarian uh, need that they have uh, becomes a role of ours, as well as uh, thousands of elderly residents of our old age homes of Amigur, our subsidiary, all across the South, as well as the North, these are populations that um, when they need that kind of assistance, they turn to us. For example, those elderly could not be even evacuated from those areas. So when we have them reside in Ashkelon or in Ofakim or Sderot, we you know, have to make sure that they are safe, that their facilities are guarded with armed people with this current horrific circumstances, that they are provided with food because they can't go out shopping or with medicine or cope with loneliness because they can't have their family members visit them as well as populations like lone soldiers, which we are uh, taking care of thousands of those and, and mostly um, assisting their families, thousands of families of those um, uh, young adults who made this uh, amazing decisions uh, coming to Israel, drafting into the army, risking their life. Unfortunately, we've seen some of them among the ones who've fallen in um, the last five weeks. And so supporting um, those lone soldiers here and their families. And so it's a domain of uh, a whole range of vulnerable populations, which at this situation of emergency, we are their go-to address. World Jury has supported the bringing of them and therefore has to be there with them uh, when they have no other one to turn to. The other domain uh, is a direct relief one. This is where we uh, bring into play um, our ability to uh, widely serve all of the populations who are affected in this kind of a situation. And the major tool by which we do that is our Victim of Terror Fund. Uh, this is a fund that we have established not now uh, towards this war, but rather 20 years ago after the Second Intifada broke. And what it is is really is the infrastructure or the systemic um, assistance to civilian families who are being affected by terror attacks. Uh, this is uh, means what we do is we provide an immediate cash grant to anyone who has been wooden or, God forbid, uh, lost a family member or got a hit to their house where they cannot go back to. Um, and within 48 hours of that attack, we provide them with that support. But more importantly, we then accompany them for a period of three years and, and walk with them through the rehabilitation journey, providing them with a whole range of support to them, the family members, the kids. The main thing that has happened is that never has we expected or been prepared for the scale of the kind of uh, amount of families that we have to treat now. So just to give um, um, the sense of it, on a regular year, we probably treat between 1,000 to 1,200 families who unfortunately join um, uh, this uh, uh, club, so to speak, of, of people who've been um, affected by terror attacks. We are now, since uh, five and a half weeks ago, we have been um, contacting and already treating over 6,500 families. Wow. Um, and we have provided over 5,500 of them already with the grants and started this uh, process now of, of getting to know and learn better each and every uh, family. We start as early as when they're in the hospitals. We work with all the communities who have been evacuated from the kibbutzim and moshavim um, in the uh, surrounding Gaza Strip. And what we know is that in this current specific war, the um, kind of uh, um, level by which their life were uh, destroyed and, and damaged are such that it will require a much more deeper intervention and assistance and support than what we have ever done until today. And so we are looking into this Victim of Terror Fund, uh, widening its support to 
additional humanitarian grants and support that we give to those families and those communities. While we work in full coordination, by the way, it's important to say with the resilience centers and the uh, uh, social services uh, departments in the municipalities, um, but we understand that the current situation is one that we have never um, experienced and the kind of assistance that they will need is um, much more um, serious than ever before. Uh, what we also do is that we start working with the different communities that are now looking into what would you know, um, midterm rehabilitation look like. So uh, whether the where, where the first five weeks were mostly, um, you know, this um, um, refugee uh, situation and, and survival situation where they're mostly um, were um, dealing with their grief and their um, um, their um, agony and, and, you know, their losses. We know that all of those communities who are now in the hotels are looking into what would the next stage look like. So not right. yet being able to go back to their uh, settlements, but then what would a temporary uh, status would look like? And then what is it that we can bring to help them uh, during that uh, situation? And, and that's a wide portfolio of things, uh, including providing them with um, different uh, interventions to work with the populations uh, as they go through rehabilitation, as well as bringing communities from abroad to partner with them and, and in kind of a solidarity be with them uh, in that uh, new phase, as well as some physical uh, building support that we give. So a whole range of things that uh, we look into working with them while they step into this uh, interim period. Uh, and I'll say lastly that uh, it's very clear to us that um, the mobilization of Jews from around the world uh, is one that is uh, very much needed, as we have done in the past, and we see huge desire and, and interest from among communities to take part uh, in this journey of theirs, uh, whether through volunteerism, whether it's through solidarity, whether through support of resources. Um, and we're also anticipating probably a wave of Aliyah as this war ends. So these are all areas whereby uh, we're looking to work uh, very delicately and I'd say in, in a modest way with those communities being attentive to their needs, to the pace of things that they need. But we see ourselves playing this vital role uh, also in the midterm and long term uh, with them based on the expertise and capacity that we uh, carry out um, on a regular uh, day. So I want to zoom in on one of those issues that you brought up, Amira, which is the the issue of the displaced people. We actually had a staff meeting earlier this week at JPPI where we spoke about pletim, right, Jewish refugees. And I think that, you know, I walked away feeling from it was more of a historical presentation by one of the fellows, Nureed Cohen. But I walked away feeling, and I think everyone pretty much said this, was that we are facing now the greatest Jewish refugee crisis or Israeli refugee crisis since 1948. We have over, I think, 120,000 people. You take the people in the north as well as the people in the south who have been displaced and taken out of their homes. I want to start with you, Yadidia. You were a member of the state-appointed Commission of Inquiry that was set up a couple few years after the Israeli withdrawal from the Gaza Strip back in 2005. and. There was a special administration similar to today. Then it was called Sela. Now it's called Kuma. Um, but that was meant to, to help all the things that Amira just mentioned about uh, for the people who were taken out of their homes in the in, in the Gush Katif settlement block in, in the Gaza Strip when the Israeli settlements used to be there. And it was a pretty much, maybe I'm wrong, but a colossal failure on, on the part of the government. And you were part of that commission that looked into it. So maybe just briefly, if you could talk about some of the 
the you know the regulatory or bureaucratic or governmental issues that people have to walk work through now, right? Yeah, but before I, I'll do that. Just before that, I want to everybody to, to understand that when you mention 120, it's actually 150 thousand Israelis who cannot sleep tonight in their bed. We're talking about three different groups. One group is those who live in the north of the country, and they were evacuated because of a fear that Hezbollah will attack them at the same uh, point in the future, and uh, they're not ready to sleep under danger. So they were evacuated. Nobody knows right now what will be the future there because they will not go back if Hezbollah stays. And right now there's no war with Hezbollah, and either there will be a new combat with Hezbollah or some kind of a political deal that will push them or move them away from our border. It's not clear what will happen. And this is a significant part of the dilemma that the government should take care of sooner than later. Second group is a bit easier to, to deal with. We're talking about people who live next to Gaza Strip, but their houses and their towns are still uh, in good shape. And hopefully, soon enough, when Israel will finish with the Hamas, they will be able to go back home, apparently no problem. But you're asking, uh, Yaakov, about the third group, those who were left without homes because the villages, their homes were taken over by the Hezbollah on the 7th of October, and there's, there's no place for them to come back to. Right. So you're right, we we have some kind of experience. It's not the same situation, obviously, but you can compare the two situations. Uh, when the disengagement from Gaza Strip happened, about 8,000 Israelis who lived there were evacuated by the state of Israel. And for years, they didn't find a way uh, to participate normally in life because of the failure of the government of dealing with them. And eventually, five years after the disengagement, the government established a state investigating committee. I was a member of this uh, committee. And we learned for a year of the major, major uh, um, terrible effects on the life of people when they are being evacuated. And over there, it was without a combat. They weren't facing death in the family and in the community. They were just moving. But just moving is a big, big deal. Many, many issues arise. Uh, first of all, how do you preserve um, you know, the spirit of a community in a condition of exile from the settlement? Are you going to take the whole issue, the whole uh, settlement, and put them in a high-rise somewhere for two years till they, they will rebuild their, their, their settlement? Do you know what will happen to the to the emotions of the people, to the ties, the tie them together. What will happen to the kids who are not used to it? The what social the fabric of the community, right? Yeah, what will be the school they will go to? Psychological, uh, social, and economic issues. Many of them used to, to work in the settlement or in the area of the settlement. Now they will be evacuated to somewhere else. They will not go to work. Even if you provide them with salary, it's not good enough. People want to go to work to feel wealthy. And we know from the from the past experience of Gush Katif that families are broken forever. People, I mean, so many people divorce each other. So many kids turn their back to the parents. 
And now we have to eliminate all these threats. Now, there are ways of doing it. We have the information that can really help. The government apparently is trying to do the best right now. As, as you know, uh, the government established an administrative body that's supposed to take care of the evacuees in various aspects. Just yesterday, an amount of about half a billion shekels was transferred for this purpose to this body, and hopefully they will use it smartly. I just want to say that we cannot expand the details, but we need to keep in mind the spirit. Ben-Gurion told us years ago that in the Negev, Israelis and the state will be tested. Now we have an opportunity not only to bring back the people to a normal kind of uh, of situation, which is obviously uh, we're, we're obliged to do, but to actually change the whole situation of the Negev and to rebuild it and to make this terrible occasion an opportunity for the future. This will be our rightful revenge on the killers of the Hamas if we will take care of the places, of the people, and of the Negev. And the Jewish agency has some keys to help. And when you hear Amira, you know that uh, there's a good chance it will happen. Yeah. So, Amira, you are in the Jewish agency. You mentioned what you know some of the mobilization of, of what's happening for the for these displaced people, for the, the refugees, trying to find uh, long term solutions because that's that's one of the big issues, right? People are thinking right now. And the government is dealing with right now, but you have to also think, as Yedidia said, years ahead. Where how are they, how are they going to maintain their community? So I'm curious, you know, what are some of the solutions practical that are on the table right now that maybe the Jewish agency is involved in? But also, you mentioned briefly how diaspora Jewry has been mobilizing to assist with this. If you could give us also maybe some examples of what that means. So first of all, I will say that, um, you know, it's been over 50 years that the Jewish agency has been in this domain of uh, partnering between communities abroad and communities in Israel. This is not something we have started doing today. Since the 70s, when Project Renewal embarked and we had uh, dozens of communities all across uh, the world partnering with neighborhoods and weaker cities in Israel, and has helped them for many years to uh, build up and develop not only physical infrastructure, but the social tapestry of those places and leadership. And then in the 90s, Partnership 2000, which uh, created this notion of um, creating partnership between a region in Israel and communities abroad, which then developed um, in the 2000s to be P2G. We currently manage a network of 46 partnership between 46 um, towns and regions in Israel and over 400 communities abroad. And some of them are maintaining those relationships for over 25 years. If you go and see the kind of impact that Chicago has had in the last 30 years and its partnership with Kiryat Gat and Lachish, right in this South, um, and also uh, with that region around Gaza, when you look at uh, partnerships like Metro West and Ofakim and Merchavim and others, what you will see is not only flow of resources, but mostly relationships who've been built over years between youth, between professionals, between families. This has become their go-to in Israel, their intimate place. They've become a wider family. And so when we think about now about mobilizing um, these kind of partnerships, 
I want to share with you that the most uh, present thing that happened during Saturday that I hear from my staff and teams in the South is the hundreds of calls that they have received from their partnered communities and people who care about them from overseas to care and see how they were. And um, then that those turned into uh, many emails and then that those turns into many visits. We've already been hosting and receiving dozens of missions of leaders and community members from all across the world who are coming to pay solidarity and to uh, wanna show uh, all of those uh, evacuees and people who've been affected that they are not alone, that this is actually a multiplying power to know that we will be able to win and rebuild ourselves. And so when we talk now about moving into this phase of, let's say, a midterm temporary residency of those communities, from there, they would hopefully be able um, within a year or two to somehow plan, you know, a future, a thriving future back in the region. We know that we don't want them to do that alone. And we know that Jews all around the world want to play a vital role. They want to help this rebuilding. And there are so many ways that they can do that. They can do that by coming to volunteer in many ways, and we are now looking into what those opportunities are. Needs across Israeli economy and society are immense in terms of enabling um, volunteers to come and fill some of those needs. We look into uh, people who would uh, partner with those communities for a period of three to five years and become intimately involved in helping them, in holding their hand and being there with them both with supporting with resources, but as well as with visiting and building relationships. Um, we have just seen uh, some of those communities who've already hosted kids and youth coming from those evacuated communities to enable them some respite in their communities and provide them with some hope and optimism and vice versa. And so we're seeing uh, so many um, um, levels of opportunities for that to happen. And we are in final stages of modeling you know, what would a premise of saying no community is left behind look like? That we make sure that every one of those dozen communities, we're now going to go through those two or three years of building themselves back and then transferring themselves back to the permanent uh, place where they would live. They would know that they're not alone. And so uh, the Jewish agency builds on its capacity and its experience from the past in doing so. I should also say that the history has shown that um, after wars, uh, there is big potential for wave of Aliyah. And so we're monitoring that um, um, closely. This is still too early to look at that. But as you know, as we come to hopefully the day after uh, when this war ends and we think about um, ways to uh, um, you know, provide growth in population to those regions and think about the revival of a thriving future in those regions, then um, you know, motivating and encouraging uh, Jews from all across the world uh, to make Aliyah and become part of those new thriving communities is yet another way. So different layers and ways, whether through volunteerism, solidarity, partnership, supporting with resources, as well as uh, eventually, uh, hopefully also Aliyah. What are the other issues that we're seeing now, and this kind of falls also into the Jewish agency's domain, but uh, Didia, uh, let me just get your thoughts on this. You know, we saw obviously the massive rally that took place this week in uh, Washington, D.C. Numbers, you know, different estimates, but around anywhere from 250,000 to 300,000 people, probably mostly Jewish, also non-Jews who were there. We're seeing this explosion of anti-Semitism. We've sp spoken about it a bit over the last couple of weeks here on the on the webinar. 
But really, this this challenge that you know we face here is also now to a large extent all over the world, and Jews everywhere have this sense. I would say a growing sense of insecurity that that maybe they didn't have uh, on October sixth. They definitely now have since October seventh. And you know, when when we think about that, what what role in a bigger way? And then I want to hear from Amira maybe what the Jewish Agency is practically doing. But what is the role that you see, Adidi, of maybe? The state of Israel's role here with helping to empower, keep safe and secure Jews and Jewish communities around the world. Well, as we all know, for the last two decades, there was a widening gap between Jews in Israel and Jews abroad. And I feel that right now we're witnessing the other direction. We are becoming again one people. You can feel that people in Israel and people outside of Israel are feeling again like, you know, interlocking vessels. Just as we in Israel are in crisis, diaspora jury also feels a crisis, not only because of what is happening here, which is obviously they care a lot of, but also because of the ugly anti-Semitic wave that uh, is attacking them abroad. So we are both uh, in a crisis, and this crisis uh, puts us together again as one people. Now, the demonstration in Washington, the march, showed the amazing strength of American Jewry, and uh, they showed the support for the nation state, their nation state. As as a Biden administration uh, feels pressure to change its supportive policy on Israel and uh, the military, military operation, I think that the political and moral power that American Jewry is uh, expressing now will play an important role as a counterweight to those who want Biden to retreat from his policy, current policy. And I think Israelis appreciate uh, the support of diaspora Jews, the political support, the emotional support, as I mentioned, and the economic uh, support. All of this is a big, big difference for us Israelis that we have brothers abroad, and they are not the biggest brother, but equal brothers to us today. Now, it seems to me that in the foreseeable future, uh, we will embrace each other in many, many ways. And it's up to the Israeli government not only to help on Hasbara and to help fighting anti-Semitism. Obviously, it is part of the job. But this, the government of, of the, of the st- nation state should act as such, meaning should talk directly to Jews in the diaspora makes them um, uh, welcome here. We know that there are differences regarding religion and state, regarding uh, values of human rights. Nevertheless, we all understand now that the, we are sharing the covenant of faith. And uh, we have to overcome the value dispute and act as one, per, as one people. Now, the Jewish Agency and JPPI are initiating an online academic course for Israelis here in Israel that will deal with the topic of Jewish peoplehood. So it seems to me that now uh, the ground is uh, ripe more than ever to study and internalize the covenant of faith that connect Jews and uh, Israelis would listen now to this. And this might turn the page in the not so easy relationship into a new chapter, hopefully uh, this uh, lemon will become a lemonade. 
Amira, so the Jewish agency obviously, you know, plays a big role. They have, whether it's providing security means and resources also for different communities that can't provide it for themselves. As you watch this explosion of anti-Semitism, and it's all over, right? It's not just in America, it's it's France. It's I think I can only imagine what just regular British people, regular Brits, non-Jews, woke up Sun Saturday morning this past week and saw those tens of thousands of people marching. What what they said to themselves, what's happened to our country? But uh, this is something that's worldwide today and a worldwide phenomenon that Jews are facing. You mentioned briefly, you know, in passing, just the expectation of maybe Aliyah. I've seen some numbers and some reports of how many people yet maybe to open a file, but to uh, express interest and to 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 turn to, to you guys and say, you know, what do we need? What are the forms to maybe get that process going? Can you talk a bit about what what that what that expectation is? And just by the way, maybe I'll just add to it. I was looking up Aliyah numbers a few like a week or two ago. We saw, for example, after the 1967 war, an explosion of Aliyah, particularly from North America. But we saw after the 73 Yom Kippur War, a huge decline in Aliyah. Right. So there's also the element that is tied to what happens here in Israel will have a direct impact. Of, on, on whether people feel that we're safe and secure and we're the place that they will want to tie their fate to. So first of all, I say I think it's a bit too early uh, to try to make any assessments. And, and, you know, when you look at the data, what we do see is quite naturally reduction in number of people who make Aliyah, though not stopping Aliyah. I can share with you that just this week, I visited in our Carmel Absorption Center and welcomed 250 young adults who decided to make Aliyah Davka these days. Wow. About half of them uh, to the Machal program to then volunteer for a year and a half in army service and about half of them um, and those who are coming from all across the Western world and about half of them from uh, the former Soviet Union, 17 years old, came without their parents uh, for a seven-month program to then be drafted in the army and stay in Israel. So I could not be more moved when I spoke to them and heard that they didn't hesitate even for a minute. And they believe their place is here. And again, all of those 250 young adults came without their parents. Um, nevertheless, you're right to know that um, Aliyah numbers currently are down. People are hesitating. People are looking um, you know, to see what will develop. We do see increase in opening Aliyah files, which is not an indication yet for Aliyah, but it's an indication for a rising interest to do that. It means that they have embarked on the first step of the formal process, both in North America and mainly in France. Uh, but we've learned in the past that, you know, these kind of, of uh, security uh, uh, situations uh, could uh, play as push and pull factors. But again, we are in initial scenario planning, uh, but not yet, uh, I think, should I don't feel responsible enough yet uh, to uh, try to assess out of that. But as we look into, uh, you know, the longer term, we believe it will create an opportunity uh, both for a rise in Aliyah, but also in channeling the Aliyah that would come to the Negev and to the uh, Galil. So um, using, um, you know, those as, as a way to kind of strengthen uh, the um, rehabilitation and revival of that region. I'll say that we're very, very concerned about the uh, security situation in communities. Uh, what's mostly concerning in this wave of violence is the number of physical assaults and threats, uh, vandalism, especially in campuses, but not only. And most concerning is that we hear more and more reports about people who are afraid to live Jewishly and attend Jewish institutions. And I think this is, you know, this is the most red alert that we can imagine. If you have a mother with kids that is afraid to send her kids to school or to buy a kosher product in the supermarket or to uh, uh, attend the synagogue, 
Um, this is a role the Jewish Agency has been playing uh, for the last 10 years uh, with its uh, special security fund. Uh, we are providing hundreds of community organizations with physical means of, of uh, security, uh, using the expertise of security arms here in Israel, work hand in hand with them. And I can tell you that in the last week, uh, we have identified over 500 community institutions around the world in more than 40 countries where we will provide emergency grants to help them cope with this situation, to expand, um, you know, uh, whatever it is that they need to do in order to make sure that Jews will continue to attend uh, those community um, organizations. That's, I mean, you know, just two thoughts that come to mind. One is just about the Aliyah. On the one hand, obviously, I would love to see more people make Aliyah to Israel, but you don't want them to have to, you want Jews to be safe in their own countries. Right. It's this, it's this you know, and, and then when you were mentioning the campuses, how many shlichim do you have now around, or, or, you know, on college? So 93, 93 Israelis, the best right. of the best, creme de la creme, IDF graduates, boys and girls from all across, diverse community from all across Israel, um, you know, society. And I can only imagine the challenges, how, how important, and, you know, their they, role is always important, but just today with the campus situation, how much more existential it's becoming uh, for and, these, and, you know, yeah. Yeah, I should say that they are no less than risking their life in some of those campuses. We're working hand in hand with Hillel at every campus to make sure that they are safely able to attend, you know, and, and carry their work. I can tell you that they've become a central address, um, you know, to uh, the Jewish students there who need to cope with this horrific situation in some of those campuses. And they've been at the forefront of many of those uh, violent events and, and, and protests that they had to uh, uh, bear with. Um, and keep in mind, those are Israelis that their families are here. So many of them have lost family members or have lost um, their own friends. Some of them have got, you know, Tzav Shmone. Um, and all of them um, are attending wider community events and providing um, the opportunity to tell the story from firsthand, uh, to share the grief, to share the, the pain and, and, and the sad days that Israel is going through. I think their role has never been um, such important as well as our younger shlichim. We have hundreds of shlichim all across the world who I think um, you know, are playing a critical role today to try to bring um, our side of the story and in a way that um, you know, is building openness in the hearts um, of the community members all across the world. So before we wrap up, let me just go quickly. Yadidia, then Amira. Six weeks we're into this conflict almost. This Saturday will be will be this marking week, the end of week six. Um, give us something hopeful ahead of Shabbat, Yadidia. Well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you something personal. Since I have four soldiers at home and another two sons-in-law, last night, out of the six young guys, four came for barbecue. So uh, I guess Tzahav uh, feels comfortable to let them go a little bit, to take it easy on one hand. On the other hand, it shows that Tzahav uh, apparently is planning for a longer kind of thing and they have to refresh. Our hope is that eventually this uh, terrible experience will change the mood inside Israel, Israel between the brothers uh, in order to push Israel for a new horizons of solidarity between brothers. This is a wake-up call, and I hope we will be woken up by it. And Amira? 
Um, so our first journey, Adidia, um, you know, in, in his words, I, I also really hope um, after many months of, of a huge, um, you know, um, breakdown here in Israel in many, many ways, um, the last couple of weeks, I think, has brought us to be united as, as we have not been uh, for a long time. And there's a big question whether, you know, that would hold also when we come to the day after. And so my prayer is that um, a lot of the energy that came from the civil society and the um, um, initiatives and the care and the Arvuta Dadit that, that, you know, is is what was most present in those five weeks in the absence of others who weren't, and, and I'll keep it this way. Um, I hope this will serve um, also as a way to heal uh, what we had to heal after the last couple of months. Um, I'll say that for me, you know, when uh, when I think of the Jewish people, I really think of it as as multiplying our power. I really, I, I know it gives me the sense that we're not alone. Um, and when we talk about Yachad Nenatzeach, I think, you know, added to the 9 million uh, uh, citizens here in Israel, 7 million Jews, um, and then take uh, a similar number or 10 million outside of Israel, um, I think this is what gives me the sense that we could win. Um, I think um, uh, knowing that we are together, that we multiply the power of one another both ways, by the way. I think Jewish communities need a strong Israel and we need thriving Jewish communities uh, in order to envision any thriving future. And so I, I draw optimism from that. When I see 300,000 Jews from all across North America rally in D.C. in this iconic historic uh, rally, um, you know, for me, that's that's strengthening me uh, as well as I know um, how it strengthened Israelis uh, here uh, to know that they have that kind of uh, of uh, support. Um, and, um, you know, uh, at, at the end, uh, we, we I think at this moment are not yet in an aftermath. Unfortunately, we're still in the midst of things. So uh, praying for, um, you know, um, hopefully not having um, uh, such um, bad news continuing day after day and, and bringing back the uh, all the captives and the uh, um, uh, people who should go back and be with their families, come back alive and, and in, in, you know, in in good shape is, is something I pray for every day. Amen. Amen. And on those two, I hope for many more barbecues, Yadidia, at the, at the Stern home. And uh, on, the, on, the, on those optimistic, hopeful notes, we'll sign off for the week. I want to thank uh, Yadidia and Amira and the Jewish Agency, JPPI, and all our listeners and viewers who've been joining us over the last six weeks. We'll be back on Sunday, taking a break, as usual, for the, the weekend for Shabbat. And uh, I'll join with just my prayer for a quiet and peaceful Shabbat for everyone here in Israel and around the world. Thank you very much and Shabbat Shalom to everyone.